Thank you, Father, for peace and quietness. Thank you for your words. Be still and know that I am God. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. As we turn again to your word, Lord Jesus, may our hearts learn again truth which can transform our hearts and lives. We thank you. You are showing us the simplicity of your word. Words that children can understand. Doesn't need a great education. We remember how it says in the Bible, the common people heard you gladly. But the educated people rebelled against you. May we show our identification with the common people again this time as we hear your word gladly. And may it speak to us as we continue thinking about what's missing in our Christian life. And as we ask this prayer, we expect nothing but blessing. For we ask it all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We've spoken so far about what's missing in your Christian life, the missing experience of being complete in Christ, and how do I make it work in my life by the missing word repentance. That was our last message. Now, for those of you who are listening by tape, today is the 24th of November, 1981, and four weeks on Friday is Christmas Day. I hear somebody say, four weeks on Friday. Never mind, five weeks on Friday it'll all be over. <laughs> and you'd be into a new year then. Now, I want, to be, I want to talk this session about the missing name in the life of the believer. And if you're listening, you'll notice that these messages are very simple. They aren't complicated. They don't demand scholarship or any uh, high intelligence to understand it. It's just a simple presentation of truth. Like the word repentance, it was so obvious as you trace through, it was the Lord's one strong message. Now we're thinking of the missing name and we're looking in the Christmas story. That's why I mentioned Christmas. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Reading from the King James, and uh, it's interesting, some of us who began reading the New Testament uh, before we were really saved, as it were, we read Matthew 1 and we get begat, 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 begat. There's 39 begats. And if you get to the end of the 39 begats, you come to these marvelous words, of whom was born Jesus. Then you have verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Did you ever realize that the New Testament begins with a man contemplating divorce? We, we get so used to divorce these days. And here in chapter 1 of Matthew, you have Joseph. That's what it means. He was planning to divorce Mary. Verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, 
For that which is, born, which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shall call his name Jesus. Repeat, thou shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, took unto him his wife, knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Verse 21, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, and he called his name Jesus. Verse 23, They shall call his name Emmanuel, and the trouble is they don't. The missing name in the life of the believer. Matthew begins with two names for our Lord. One is the name Jesus, which means Savior. The other is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Notice how Matthew's Gospel ends. Matthew 28, verse 20. The Lord speaking, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you. I am is Jehovah, God. I am with you. Matthew's gospel begins and ends with Emmanuel. I noticed as we were singing the hymn this morning from Wesley's great hymn, Jesus the name that charms our fears. How many hymns do you know that bring in the name of Jesus? You couldn't count them. Most choruses are about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's great. I'm all for it. How many do you know that bring in the name Emmanuel? We sing one in England, O come, O come, Emmanuel, about Advent time for Christmas. But you notice the scarcity of hymns there are about Emmanuel, and yet that was his name. We major in the name Jesus, and we minor in the name Emmanuel. You see, Jesus is what he did. Emmanuel is who he is. Jesus talks about the death of Christ. Emmanuel is the life of Christ, God with us. You'll find, I'm not making it up, the whole of the New Testament and the whole of the Word of God is full with this two presentation of the work of Christ and the person of Christ about his reconciling death and his saving life. This isn't something Major Thomas invented. Some people think he invented it. Uh, he didn't. Paul didn't invent it. It's right through the Word of God. But as I've just seen, we, we major in the name Jesus. Thank God we do. Jesus, the name that charms our fears and how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Thank God for all the lovely hymns about Jesus. But how about Emmanuel? The very hymns we sing demonstrate the emphasis we give. 
Thank God we do think about the cross. Thank God we sing about the precious blood. Thank God we do. But as we've seen, there's two sides of the coin of salvation. The other side is the life of Christ. Again, Romans 5.10. We're reconciled by his death so that what? We can be saved by his life. Reconciled by his death, Jesus. Saved by his life, Emmanuel. And as we've seen, that's the, the missing experience. Thank God for everybody who's been to the cross and knows sins forgiven and a home in heaven and is reconciled. But that isn't the whole deal. It's much more, much more, much more. We can go in to know the wonder of the living Christ as he indwells us by his Holy Spirit. And the very name Emmanuel tells it. You know, again, you'll hear me say this many times. It's so simple. It's so obvious. Here you have, right at the beginning, two names, two ministries, two presentations. And we major in Jesus, thank God we do, and we just dismiss Emmanuel as, so what? And in doing so, we cut ourselves off from all that could be ours in the life of Christ. Notice it says in verse 23, uh, or verse 22, might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. I'm sure you know who the prophet was. Of course, it's Isaiah. And chapter 7, and I'm looking in Isaiah chapter 7. And I'm looking at the verse in question, which is verse 14. And I'm reading the verse in question. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. The spelling is different in the King James, but of course the name is the same, Emmanuel. There's the prophecy in Isaiah. Now don't look for the time being, but if I was to ask you... Uh, that prophecy, whom did God choose to reveal to them the wonder of the virgin and the little baby and Bethlehem? To whom did God whisper this tremendous secret of a virgin and the little baby and Christmas? And if you don't know, and many people don't know, and I said, well, you guess, who might it be? You'd say, well, it must have been some super saint, maybe a prophet like Isaiah, maybe one of the wonderful women, because there are some marvelous women of God in the Bible who did great things for God, maybe to one of these women. But the interesting thing we'll find out as we go along now. Let's do a Bible study again. Look in Second Chronicles and chapter 28. I'm doing a Bible study now on probably the biggest rebel in the Bible. You name it, they're in the Bible. Whatever they may be, adulterers, murderers, everywhere, you'll find them in the Word of God. And the Bible doesn't pull any punches or gloss over any details. Second Chronicles 28. And the man we're thinking of is known as Ahaz. Reading the first few verses of Second Chronicles 28. 
Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, but he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father or his forefather. 20 years old, that puts him in your age bracket. You folks are students here, about your age bracket, some of you, 20 years old. And he was dead and buried at 36, which to some of us here is not old, it's young. He was dead and buried at 36. 20 years old, he was king of the little kingdom of Judah, and he, could, he had no uh, senate, no congress. He had no supreme court. He could do exactly what he wanted and nobody could say no. He was completely in control. A 20-year-old boy in control of the destiny of a country. And he was a direct descendant of David. And uh, if you've been to Jerusalem, you'll find that... Um, you find where the temple was. And when I was there last, they were excavating next door to the temple. They were excavating the palace of the kings where, for example, Ahaz and all the other kings lived. And you'll find that Ahaz lived next door to church. There was the temple here and the palace here. And some of them were saying there was an underground passage. They always have underground passages from one place to another. But there was the palace and there was the temple. And he lived next door to church. And when you look at his story, as you'll see in a moment, I'll give you the background now. He was very much like Israel is today. In fact, some of the enemies are still the same in name and in ideas. Israel, uh, Judah was the kingdom then, a little kingdom. Israel was the northern kingdom. And Judah, the little kingdom in the south of which Ahaz was king, was surrounded by enemies. And these enemies were doing all they could to wipe out the kingdom of Judah. Just like Israel today is surrounded by all the nations who the PLO are seeking to wipe out and destroy the kingdom of Israel. Syria is mentioned in the Bible. It's the same Syria today. It's in a, in a strange sense. It's the same kind of picture. And Ahaz was in complete control of the whole thing. But I go on reading in verse 2. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, which was semi-pagan. He made also molten images for Balaam. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He sacrificed also and burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. You'll find, as well as being rebellious, he was religious. He was one of the most religious kings in the Bible, just for those 16 years as a young fellow. But, and this is strange, he never, never turned to God. Don't ever ask me afterwards why, I don't know, ask him well, you can't, but ask somebody else. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell you. He lived next door to church, but he had nothing whatever to do with God, Jehovah. He worshipped gods, uh, false gods, and as he was attacked by his enemies, he sacrificed to false gods to get help. 
he sent to Assyria, not Syria, Syria was north of him, Assyria was to the east, and he sent to Assyria to get mercenaries to fight for him. His whole reign was spent in fear and trembling, uh, seeking to withstand the opposition, but he never once turned to God. But he was sincere. Let me show you how sincere he was. There was a God in the Old Testament called Molech. And Molech was one of the gods whom Jehovah hated above all else and had condemned all who sought to worship Molech. Molech was worshipped in a grim and ugly way. Molech was a god about maybe as high as that lamp there with an ugly head and an open mouth and a steps leading up to the mouth and it was hollow and at the base was a fire so that out of the mouth came fire and smoke. And Molech demanded human sacrifices, in particular babies. And if you wish to worship Molech, you as a mother or a father brought your baby and you gave your baby to a priest of Molech and after all the ritual had been accomplished he carried your baby up the steps and threw your baby into the mouth of Molech the baby fell into the fire there was a, there was a scream of a baby the smell of burning flesh and you'd worship Molech now that's a terrifying thing now read verse 3 again. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of the sin, son of Hinnom, and he burned his children in the fire. Burned his children. More than one of Ahaz's babies was burnt alive to sacrifice to Molech. Now I call that being sincere. I know of no greater example of sincerity and choosing to burn your own little baby so that you could get a God to help you. Those of you who have little babies, think, for example, uh, of the little babies we see around here. Think of little Hannah. Think of anybody taking a baby like Hannah or the little ones and just throwing them into the... I mean, you, it makes you cringe to think of it. Now, that proves his sincerity. This is Ahaz. Read on with me in verse uh, 16, the same chapter. At that time did King Ahaz send unto the kings of Assyria, that's to the east, to help him. For again the Edomites had come and smitten Judah, carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded, uh, and so on. Verse 19, for the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord until Gathpilnesa, king of Assyria, came unto him and distressed him, but strengthened him not. For Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the house of the king and out of the princes and gave it unto the king of Assyria, but he helped him not. In the time of his distress did he trespass yet more against the Lord, this is that King Ahaz. For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him, 
And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, therefore will I sacrifice to them, and they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. His philosophy, uh, the, uh, the Syrians in the north beat me because their gods helped them. Now I will sacrifice to the gods of Syria. They will switch sides. They will come on my side. They will fight for me. His philosophy... He was totally sincere. Read on in verse 24. Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God, cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every several city of Judah he made high places to burn incense unto other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. Now that's Ahaz, the supreme rebel. Religious? Absolutely so. Fancy going into God's holy temple, the golden temple of Solomon, getting all the vessels that they used, they were all of solid gold, taking them, cutting them in pieces, sending those vessels to Assyria to buy mercenaries, you know, soldiers to come and fight on his side. Closing up the temple, no worship. Temple doors closed, no worship today or any other day. All the priests out of business. We're going to worship Baal, Molech, and all the other gods. Ashtaroth and a whole bunch of them. And this is Ahaz. Rebel. Religious. And always in distress. Now look with me in uh, 2 Kings in chapter 16. And we have some more about this young fellow. Back again to 2 Kings and 16. There are some amazing characters in the Old Testament. And we've got to learn from every one of them. Chapter 16 of 2 Kings. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, that's the northern kingdom, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God like David his father. You see, it's the same person. Now, verse 10. King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. The king of Assyria had a partial victory. And when Ahaz went there, he saw an altar that was at Damascus. Now, this young man was always on the lookout for some new way to gain help. If he lived today, he'd have charms all hanging round his neck and goodness knows what not. He wanted some visible means of demonstrating allegiance to some spiritual power. And when he went to Damascus, he saw an altar. And he was transfixed by the altar. He thought, man, boy, if I had an altar like that, I'd do things. The colors and the shape. And so he whistled in one of his officers of his army. And he said, I want a, a correct drawing made of that altar. The, the, the dimensions, the pattern, the colors. And I want it sent down to the high priest in Jerusalem. And you see in verse 10, 
he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah, the priest, the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to all the workmanship thereof. And Urijah, the priest, built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Urijah, the priest, made it against King Ahaz came from Damascus. Here, Urijah is deeply in fault. He's the high priest who's supposed to be in charge of the worship of Jehovah. And the command he gets is to build this pagan altar, which he did. Maybe he was scared. Anybody who'd burn his own babies wouldn't mind cutting somebody else's throat, I'm sure. And so he built this altar. And where could you put it? Well, you put altars in a temple. And so Urijah erected this altar in the courtyard of the temple of God, the abandoned holy temple of God. He built this altar there. And when this young fellow comes back from Damascus, where's my altar? Where's my altar? And they showed him his altar. And verse 12, when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar, the king approached to the altar and offered thereon. And he was trying to find some new way of getting in touch with a God of some kind. Not the given way. He had turned his back completely on the God-given way of worship by the temple and through the priests appointed by calling on Jehovah. It shut that up. He was trying every gimmick he could find. He was a new gimmick. And if you read on, he tried all the offerings you could think of except a sin offering. Nowhere did he acknowledge himself as a sinner. And you find in verse 14, he brought also the brazen altar which was before the Lord from the forefront of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. This must have been a, a, a climactic moment, because from the day that Solomon had built this golden altar, there had been the brazen altar where all the sacrifices were offered. If you came as a Jew in those days, you got as far as the altar and you, met, you handed in your beast and the priest took over and the brazen altar was here. But this young fellow comes in and uh, as I go on reading and as you see it, uh, you may feel like I do. If I was God, I'd have struck him dead. I'm sure I would have done. Because he puts this pagan altar in God's holy courtyard. And he says that this brazen altar, we don't want that brazen altar. Take it away. And for the first time that they moved away the, the brazen altar where the sacrifice for sin was offered. He was having nothing to do with sacrifices for sin. Away went the brazen altar. And then... As well as the brazen altar, between the brazen altar and the holy place, there was the laver. The laver was a huge basin which was filled with water for the priests to cleanse in. You have the same idea as we have in our own worship today. You have uh, forgiveness by the shed blood, cleansing, and then worship. The priests did the the forgiveness, and the priest did the cleansing, and the priest did the worship. And so he had the brazen altar put away, no forgiveness, and he looked at the laver, we don't want that thing, take it away. Away went the forgiveness, away went the cleansing, and there was his pagan altar, 
And he said, now, now. And as I read this, I think, oh God, why did you, why did you put up with him? Here he is. Look, for example, at the end of verse 15. He says, the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. I'm going to ask you questions. It gets creepier as you go on. You wonder how insolent can a human being be and still get away with it. But this is to teach us as we go on. And so here you have this young fellow here with this absolute blasphemous behavior. Getting away from the sin altar and the cleansing, his own pagan altar, demanding answers from God, and of course, getting nowhere. Now, look back with me in Isaiah chapter 7. And some remarkable things come to light. I'll be talking about Isaiah later on in my messages. But you'll find that Isaiah lived at the same time as this fellow. I don't suppose they ever met hardly. Because Isaiah was committed to the holiness of God. And Ahaz was committed to the sinfulness of sin. And they would never meet. But I'm reading in chapter 7 of Isaiah. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah... That Rezin, the king of Syria, that's the northern kingdom, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, the northern kingdom, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but couldn't prevail against it. It was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, and his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood, are moved with the wind. A most dramatic moment. You see Ahaz sitting in his palace next door to the temple, of which he has no interest at all, sitting in his own palace, and a servant runs in and again says, Your Majesty, invasion again. In the country's invaded again. And this lad says, Ah, oh, what do I do now? His heart was moved. And the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood, are moved by the wind. There's a great shaking. He began to shake. His whole being began to shake. And everybody who heard it began to shake with fear. Where do I go now? I've sacrificed my children. I've paid money. I've sacrificed this. I've done this. I've done this. And nothing's happened. What do I do now? And it was then, verse 3, then the Lord said to Isaiah, always enjoy, if you can, the value of the word then. At such a time, under such situations, in these circumstances, then the Lord said unto Isaiah. So important the word then when it comes like this. Here you have this young fellow. He's run out of anything. He's finished. And he's invaded again. He doesn't know where to turn. He's come to rock bottom. And then the Lord said to Isaiah, Now you go and meet Ahaz. I, I, the suggestion could be they've never met before. 
Are you gone meet Ahaz? Thou and Shear Jashab thy son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fullest field. Tells him where you can meet him. Say unto him, Take heed. Be quiet. Fear not. Lovely words from God to this harassed, terrified young fellow. Take heed. Be quiet. Don't be afraid. I call this chapter the humble God because Ahaz wouldn't come to God but God in his infinite mercy comes to Ahaz. God hadn't, you'll find that God hadn't given Ahaz up. Ahaz had given God up long ago. But God hadn't given Ahaz up. There's a, a famous poem called The Hound of Heaven. Some of you may have read it, The Hound of Heaven. It, dis, it portrays uh, the Holy Spirit as the Hound of Heaven, pursuing somebody, God never giving up. I was talking to someone recently, uh, this last weekend, about somebody um, who was a believer, one of their children, who had turned away from God and had backslid and was away, away, away in the wilderness, far miles away. And we were talking, and I love to tell mothers or parents, you know, that isn't the end of the story. You may be, oh, what do I do now? Look, is in this and this and this. That isn't the end of the story. The hound of heaven never gives up. The Holy Spirit never gives up. The Holy Spirit pursues and pursues. And here's God pursuing this young man Ahaz. He is a, a by birth one of God's people. He is by birth a, a king of God's people. Totally away from God. Completely as we've seen. And yet God hasn't given him up. If I'm talking now or later on to some parents. Who've got children who are breaking their hearts. Because of their behavior. I know brokenness. I know what it means. But that isn't the end of the story. The father in Luke 15 never gave up hope. When the prodigal son, when no man gave to him, he came to himself. It's a strange thing that. It's repeated time and time again. I, I, I've, I think of parents I've spoken to. And they've got kids who've got away from the Lord. And the kids go on until they've run out of friends. And there's no one will help them. And even the junkies won't take them in. And uh, I said, that's a wonderful situation to be in. It was when no man gave unto him, that the prodigal son came to himself. You go right on until there's nobody left. As long as you've got someone to give you a handout, or back you up, or encourage you, you keep on going away. But when you come to the end of the rope, and no one gave unto him, then he came unto himself. Then he came back to his father. And this wonderful picture of the father who was always looking. And as soon as he saw his son coming, he, he ran to meet him. And here is that same heavenly father looking at this young fellow. Sending Isaiah, take heed, be quiet, fear not. And Isaiah spells out to Ahaz 
God's plan for the whole situation. Remember, Ahaz says, what do I do now? And then God sends a, a Isaiah, and this is God's plan. And verse, the end of verse 9, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Isaiah says to Ahaz, this is God's answer. This is the way God will handle it. And if you let God take control, then it will be all right. But if you won't believe, then you'll never make it. A tremendous words to remember, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. You can say the same thing concerning this wondrous saving life of Christ. I'm speaking to someone and you've been to the cross, you've been reconciled by the death of Christ, but you are slow to respond to the appeal of the life of Christ, letting him move in and be Lord of your life. Let him live his life in you and for you and through you. If you don't believe, you'll never be established. You'll just go on being a spiritual junkie, washed up on the shores of heaven. Verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz. Don't miss that. First he sends Isaiah to get his attention. Then God speaks to him. Ahaz has never spoken to God. He's avoided God. But now he's at the extreme point. God spake unto him, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Don't miss the word thy. God hadn't given him up. Ahaz had given God up, as we've seen. God hadn't given him up. The hound of heaven was still on his tail. Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. And God reminds Ahaz. You know in the history of my people. There have been many times. When a king or a prophet. Or a judge or a leader. Has been absolutely on the spot. With nowhere to turn. Then they've cried to me. And I've worked a miracle. Either from heaven. Hailstones or storms. Or from the ground. I'm the God who can work miracles. And God says ask me. You have God pleading with Ahaz. Not Ahaz pleading with God. God pleading with Ahaz. Ask me. Ask me to do something for you. And then you have these terrifying words of verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. Neither will I tempt the Lord. Forget it. Not interested. And you cringe again and you say, God, how much are you going to take from this fellow before you wipe him out? Even Isaiah, blessed, peaceful Isaiah, loses his temper. Look at verse um, 13. And Isaiah said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Don't you talk to God like that. It's a moment of blazing temper. Uh, Ahaz, a blazing temper, disregarding God. Isaiah, moving in the same way. Don't talk to God like that. This moment of clash of personalities. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And when we thought of that verse to begin with, we thought, to whom was it spoken? 
to some godly saint, some wonderful woman, some prophet. No. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways aren't my ways. God often gives his precious jewels to people whom we wouldn't even consider. Think of the woman at the well who had been so many times divorced and was living as a no-good woman. He told her the secret. He was the Messiah and he told about the living water. Amazing how God gives jewels to people who we think don't deserve them. It was to this rebel that Isaiah, under the inspiration of God, gave this most wonderful prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, surely, it, it, it is true that it was later on fulfilled, in a sense, partially fulfilled in Ahaz's day and generation about a child being born. But if we know that the application was not to Ahaz's day, but to, to the day of Matthew, because that's the whole significance. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. The Lord Jesus was going to be the one whom God would send to be the answer. Now, don't miss this. It's so simple and so beautiful. Here's Ahaz with all the problems of the world around him. God begging him to accept God's help. Ahaz saying, forget it. And God said, all right, if that's the way you want it. But someday, someday, a virgin will conceive. And she'll bear a son. My son. Emmanuel. God with us. And he will be my answer to everyone with headaches and heartaches and problems and tragedies and difficulties and fears and distresses. And that's this tremendous significance of the name Emmanuel. We each in our own way do an Ahaz now and again. We're, we're, the heart is always a rebel. One of Billy Graham's early films had that. The heart is a rebel. It always is. The human heart is always rebellious. And we constantly keep on doing an Ahaz on our own. But God has an answer. If I'm speaking now to somebody who is really under pressure of, sp of mind or emotion or will or spirit or soul or body, whatever it may be, if you're really on the spot and you don't know which way to turn or how to handle it, then there's the answer. That's the beauty and the wonder of the life of Christ. The finished work of Christ, His reconciling death. The continuing work of Christ, the indwelling Christ. Daily delivered from sin's dominion by His resurrection life. There may be someone, as I said before, really under pressure. This is good theology, it's Bible study, but it's also practical. You know, a lot of us, and I said this before, we expose our minds to information, to get more information. And thank God we do, that's what a Bible school is for, exposing your mind for information. But if that's all you do, you've missed the point of a Cape and Ray Bible school. A Cape and Ray Bible school, you expose your minds for information and you expose your heart for the truth. And as the Lord said, the truth will make you free. And of course the truth is the twofold work of Christ. 
You have Emmanuel. God offered to Ahaz assistance. And he refused it. God has given you. You are complete in Emmanuel. You have Emmanuel. He's there. He'll move in and into situations. I can do all things through Christ. It's there. The question is, what do you do with Emmanuel? He almost spit in God's face and just threw the whole thing away. And there are many of us who choose to solve the problem ourselves. We move into the situation. I was, some weeks ago, it really struck me, you know, it says how uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways aren't my ways. I was so challenged by living in America as I've done for coming to for, this is my 23rd year in America. I spend more time in America than anywhere else. And the whole philosophy of America is go man, go. You know that. Go man, go in business, whatever it may be. And that's very often the same in our Christian life. Go man, go. Now, that's the American philosophy. God's philosophy is come man, come. You see how simple it is? The angel said to Joseph, you'll call his name Jesus. They'll call his name Emmanuel. And we follow Joseph's example and call his name Jesus, but we don't call his name Emmanuel. We do all the things connected with the name Jesus, come to the cross, forgiveness, home in heaven, but we don't do all the things connected with Emmanuel. And we condemn ourselves to blood, toil, tears and sweat. As we saw last night, on the cross, Jesus is the sin bearer. In the crisis, Emmanuel is the burden bearer. Some of you are bearing burdens God never intended you to bear. Cast your burden on the Lord and he'll sustain thee. We believe it up here, but not down here. If you can turn belief into behavior, you've got it made. So, let's come to the most important part of the message. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Sixty seconds of wonderful quietness. And uh, Emmanuel will come to you. God with you. The living Christ. And uh, as he said to Ahaz, be quiet. Fear not. This is my plan. If you won't believe, you won't be established. But if you believe, if you let me take over, see what happens. So here's your chance to get involved again. 60 seconds of quietness from now.
Heavenly Father, forgive us that so often in our enthusiasm and our willingness to be available to you, we go, man, go. And we get involved, just like Ahaz did, doing our own thing. And all the time, in quietness and in confidence, shall be your strength. May we learn to trust Emmanuel just as much as we trust Jesus. May we be involved with all the wonder of Emmanuel as we have been involved with all the wonder of Jesus. As we have been reconciled by your death, blessed Lord, may we go on to be saved day by day by your life. And we ask it for your dear name's sake. Amen.